One year, I kind of got an idea. You know, I want to try trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure. And I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money in the fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the furball. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Representing trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Perfect and Game magazine. This structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon's ads. Information, trapping radios. We are trappers and ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because we're ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got very much the same as the you got more than they started talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't know, get them better. Trying to set predator trash and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like it gets sheared. You better edit this part out. Yeah, yeah, it was better. Back in the first shed, this is Trapping Today. I'm Jeremiah Woods. Thank you for tuning in. Great to have you here. We're brought to you by Cox Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z. BROS.com, trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Cotsboros has a full line of trapping supplies, traps, snares, great selection of baits and lures, books, DVDs, everything you need to get going on the trap line. We're also brought to you by OnX Maps. Turn your phone into a fully functioning GPS, mark your waypoints, track movement, get landowner information, parcel data, view the latest aerial imagery, so many more tools you can use with this app. Go to onxmaps.com. Use the promo code TRAP, T-R-A-P, with your first purchase at onxmaps.com, and you'll get 20% off. So uh, great savings there, great product. I think you will enjoy OnX and uh, recognize you'll use it for a lot more things than you thought you would. Tonight's episode, been wanting to, been thinking about doing this for quite a while. The uh, title of this episode I think is going to be The Fur Market is Dead. Um, this is a uh, update on the fur market, a reality check on fur prices, and uh, a little bit of soul searching here on on what we do as as trappers. So uh, just a quick little update on me. My fur shed is actually full of roofing supplies, believe it or not. So uh, not cool for uh, a trapper this late in the season. We're we're almost mid September. Usually we're getting ready and and getting things going. Um, getting traps taken care of and cleaned up and everything scouting ground and uh that's not happening quite yet but i'm i'm getting i'm getting there get all my hay in and get some other things on the farm that need to be uh, buttoned up and the house that need to be buttoned up but we're we're getting there so uh it'll it'll come i think but the i guess the good thing about it is this season there's not really going to be a lot of uh a lot of people out there in the woods to compete with so i think uh there's no real rush to get started trapping anyway so um, that not to say I won't still be out there first thing on opening day Um, just part of my nature it's hard not to go but um, there's time there's time yet Uh, quickly just a little feedback on the last couple episodes we did on uh, winter gear for the cold weather clothing for the trap line got a few emails from that some people that appreciated 
that information and and uh, a couple of guys who are similar to me that get cold easy or they they really like the you know getting quality stuff uh, one guy emailed and said uh, had some saying about um, he said buy once cry once <laughs> so you get the pain over with but you have good quality gear and you move forward and you have something that's gonna last a long time so uh, great feedback there a couple of mentions one listener wanted uh, to to mention Duluth Trading Post and and I did not say anything about them Duluth is a, it's a Minnesota company they have a lot of cold weather gear as you might expect in in Minnesota there's uh, cold weather that would require a lot of that gear and they're they have stores all over the country now I I don't have a lot of experience with Duluth when I did a bunch of my shopping I saw some of their products showed up on on the website and when I was searching for certain things and I browsed a lot but I never really did I never ordered anything from them I really wasn't sure about the sizes or anything like that and so not having not being able to actually wear things and see them in person was a bit of a hindrance for me but check Duluth out uh, if you are looking for cold weather gear they do seem to have a lower price point and I don't know much about the quality I assume it's pretty good quality they seem to get quite a few good reviews but uh, you know try them out for yourself and, and let me know if you do another listener Joanna mentioned uh, something about the the comment I made on goggles fogging up and how it was very difficult for me in Alaska to to actually wear those ski goggles on snowmobile because they just constantly fog up. She mentioned a product called Cat Crap. <laughs> Quite a name for a product, but it you can get it right on Amazon and apparently I haven't ordered it yet, but I'm probably going to. You you just kind of rub it on to your whatever surface like a a face shield a uh, you know goggles glasses whatever and it's supposed to prevent them from fogging up so she says it works great for her and uh, so that's something I'll be trying out Um, if you have any feedback on that stuff or anything else feel free to let me know send me an email at jrodwood at gmail.com j-r-o-d-w-o-o-d at gmail.com moving on the Mustella trapping today Mustella t-shirt the thing is a piece of art it's beautiful I I absolutely love the thing um, I just uh, it, it's just so cool I've, I've enjoyed shipping those shirts out to a bunch of you we are sold out of size extra large apparently I didn't get enough of those um, and so I apologize for people who who wear XL I gotta decide I, I only had 50 shirts printed up total of all the different sizes and I haven't decided yet whether I want to actually go through the process of buying more shirts getting them in and getting them printed so uh, I'll see what kind of demand there is if you do want an XL let me know and and I'll put you on a list and and if we get enough people on the list I'll order another batch of shirts if you are small medium or large I think actually XXL is sold out as well I believe I believe it's small, medium, large is what we have right now. Um, go to trappingtoday.com and click on the Mustella shirt. If you're on a desktop or a laptop computer, it's right on your right sidebar of the site. 
Otherwise, if you're on mobile, just swipe all the way down to the bottom of the site and you'll see uh, an ad for the t-shirt. Just click on that. You can order that. Pretty simple checkout process, a safe, secure order form, and you'll get your shirt 25 bucks free shipping, and I ship those all out directly from here. So uh, so get your shirt while they last because, you know, they may we may run out of other sizes as well. Walter Arnold, Main Trapper, stories from one of the last mountain men. Thanks, guys, for the reviews. I think we had 13 um, ratings on Amazon and a lot of great feedback on the book. If you haven't gotten it, go to Amazon.com, search Walter Arnold book, and you'll find it right there. You can pick it up. It's around 20 bucks, and uh, I think it's you're going to enjoy it. Uh, at some point, I get to get back to reading a few more excerpts from that book and, and give you guys a little bit of a, a visual on what life was like trapping back then in the 1930s and 40s in northern Maine where it was uh, incredibly remote. The fur prices were awesome, the opposite of where we're at now uh, in, in throughout most of that era, and trapping was more a way of life and for a lot of people. So check that book out if you haven't. I appreciate the support. And finally, I've got Long Distance Call Lure in stock. Been selling a little bit of that here. You can tell it's starting to get cooler and people are thinking trapping. Um, I I have enough in stock here for for several more orders. Uh, I do plan on making some lure when I can get the time put together. Um, but for now, be sure to order early if you want to get that. Uh, excellent, excellent lure. Um, I've been using this lure for years now, and a lot of customers have been using it and have gotten a lot of excellent feedback. Uh, it's it's you know high quality ingredients, a great simple formula that calls in critters from a long distance. It works very good in cold weather. So I hope that you uh, take the opportunity. Go to trappingtoday.com, check out that lure. And it's 25 bucks for a four ounce jar of it. That includes the shipping. So get your lure while you can. And I have I have a couple of other lure formulations that I am thinking about putting on the market. I say putting on the market. It's kind of a joke, but uh, making available for sale. I'm not going to go through the traditional market channels and and all of that. Uh, any as you know, as far as right now, my only plan as far as making lure is to develop uh, simple, reliable lure formulas that I have a high level of confidence in using high quality ingredients and selling them directly to you and not going through the wholesale channels, not going through the F&Ts or the PCS or, or any other dealers, uh, just direct sales because it provides a little better margin so I can actually um, make a little bit off of it. Uh, you are insured uh, that you're you're going to get it directly from me so you don't have to worry about whether you're actually going to get the lure and um, you know what the quality is going to be like or anything like that. Uh, also, I can I can get away with using the best quality ingredients and having you know pretty decent margin whereas I think in a lot of cases if if you have to sell lure to a wholesaler, uh, they have to take the cut a cut of the profits as well and you have to sell it cheaper and it makes it much more difficult um, to use the best ingredients to have a quality lure formulation and actually still make a profit doing it and you can you've noticed over the past few years or past probably two or three years uh, the lure prices have gone up 
and that's because all of the the lure makers are just having a harder and harder time making a living or or making any type of profit doing it because the margins are getting thinner and and the cost of ingredients are going higher and everything else is getting getting higher so that's that is a concern but uh, the beauty is i don't really need to sell a whole bunch of lures so if i can just sell to trappers like you that listen in the podcast and uh, want to get your lure from me and help help support what i've got going on that would be awesome so i've got uh two or three other formulations that are made and i have but but and made and i've used and i've had success with them but i haven't actually made them on a scale to be able to sell um, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it, and uh, I will probably in the next couple of weeks, I'll have more to say about that. In other news, we have a couple of potential follow-up interviews to come. I remember talking with Mike from Wyoming. Uh, he had quite a few interesting uh, stories to tell, and, and we, we talked about a lot of his early trapping back east and then moving out to Wyoming and how he's done there so far. Uh, Mike's done a lot since we last talked and we're going to try to get back together and, and do another interview for a an upcoming episode. Also following up with Patrick from Massachusetts, you remember him, um, great guy to talk with on the podcast. And probably later on this season, sometime maybe in January or February, uh, I plan to get back with Patrick. He is expanding his animal damage control business there in Massachusetts and also crossing state lines and doing a little bit of surrounding work in surrounding states and trapping uh, over there. So uh, it's going to be great, I think, to, to catch up with Patrick and kind of, I remember early on, somebody gave me a suggestion when I asked, you know, for different things that people wanted to to see to hear on the podcast and they said well why don't why don't you follow a trapper like a beginner trapper all through you know and, and kind of do up regular updates and everything and I never really did that but but the idea stuck with me that it would be cool to follow up with different people so uh, we'll follow up with Patrick later on in the season and see how things have progressed for him it's uh, it's great to uh, to see how excited people get about trapping when they catch the bug, man, it is just incredibly hard to uh, let go of. It's just so much fun, and and you spend so much time uh, thinking about trapping and talking trapping and, and getting stuff ready and anticipating it. It's just a it's a really good thing, and Patrick definitely has that bug. So, be good to catch up with him. Uh, and then finally, I had an email from Kristen. Um, and from uh, North Carolina, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kristen. But uh, w- talked about. Uh, she had a question that we'll get into uh, uh, in another episode, and talking about trapping on public land with uh, and dealing with issues with dogs, with particularly with hunting dogs, and uh, hunters with their bird dogs. So, or other dogs, you know, hound dogs or anything else. So that's a, a huge, huge issue when it comes to trapping in certain parts of the United States and uh, or of North America, really. And so that's something that I think is worth dedicating a good part of an episode, if not a whole episode, to. So we will we'll get into that in the Christmas question and my thoughts and suggestions, and then maybe take some feedback from you guys. Um, and then that got me thinking when I was thinking about her questions and her email. Uh, there, another topic that I wanted to cover, uh, I've been wanting to cover for a while now, but it kind of just, I kind of forgot about it, to be honest. 
is the idea of avoiding non-target animals and targeting uh, specific uh, critters on your trap line. So it's a very misunderstood subject from you know the non-trapping public and especially the anti-trapping public that spreads these ideas to the public that you know traps are indiscriminate and that's not the case. So I I want to talk about different ways that we as trappers can avoid non-target animals and only catch target animals um, or at least move ourselves closer to the that uh, professional methodology of a trapper where you know you you have the greatest chance of catching the species that you're actually after as opposed to um, to just catching whatever walks into your trap and that is a very important thing when it comes to trapping in certain situations where where it's important to avoid certain species so we'll get into that uh, as well in the future but before we spend way too much time on introductions and updates and everything else let's talk about that let's get into it let's get into the topic so the fur market's dead um, that's the that's the topic of tonight's episode I want to give you an update on the current state of the fur market um, I'll give you I'll give you just in 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 summation. I've talked to several old timers over the past couple of weeks. Hope you guys uh, don't mind me calling you old timers. I know because a couple of you are listening in, but everybody has told me that it's the worst they've ever seen. Even during the fur market crash of the '80s, prices were better than they are now. So fur prices are probably as low as they've ever been on a, as a whole on the overall um, averages for for all species there's a few bright spots there but overall fur prices are probably the lowest they've ever been this is a huge challenge for us because we've seen declines in fur prices for several years and if you remember me talking uh, in previous episodes over the past couple of years I anticipated for quite a long time that we were going to hit a bottom in 2020 and we would start to see the recovery during this, this you know, approximately 2020, 2021. Um, I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was somewhere around now is where we would start to see a recovery. Uh, of course, uh, that was the overall fur market in terms of supply, demand, global economics and everything that was going on at the time minus the impact of the coronavirus and the coronavirus has taken an already very poor market and turned it upside down so the market is essentially non-functioning right now um, I, I i kind of I, I guess we should just do a, a brief update on fur prices because we've been heading in this direction for quite a while um, now, with the recent developments, I don't think we're going to see this recovery in, in, uh, in 2020, 2021. Um, we, we may come off the bottom a little bit, but we're not going to be back to those prices that we had talked about back in 20, you know, even 2017, 2018. I don't think we're going to see those prices for quite a while now. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll just step back for in a, a couple years in time and think about what caused uh, fur prices to go to go up and go down. We had the that boom, that mini fur boom that people talk about that occurred somewhere around 2013, 2014. Uh, we had 
prices that were uh, higher than they had been in any time in recent history. And that, that lasted for a couple of years and then it kind of faded away. And prices kind of stayed fairly depressed for a while until the last couple of years when they really tanked. So what happened? Um, we, we saw a couple of things occurring, and I've talked about this quite a bit in the past, but mainly the two big factors were global economies were slowing down and oil prices were in the toilet. So the, the price of oil affects certain countries that rely on exporting oil and selling crude oil for a great portion of their economy. And the big one that consumes a lot of fur and produces a lot of oil is Russia. Um, and even a lot of the fur that's bought from China is actually manufactured in China and sold to Russia. Russia, the buying power of the Russian citizens and the Russian economy kind of grind ground to a halt with the uh, the crash in oil. So oil went down, you know, oil was upwards of $100 a barrel. It was 60 to $80 a barrel. It dropped down to about $40 a barrel. More, the a few months ago, oil crashed and it was actually at a negative. Believe it or not, the, the oil futures were, went down to like negative $40 a barrel during the corona crisis. And oil has recovered up to about $40 and now it's dropping again as I record this. I think it's in the mid-30s. Um, but it spent quite a bit of time the last few months down in the you know in the 20s, uh, in the 20s and 30s dollars per barrel. So we're talking about a fifth to a quarter, or a, a quarter to a third of uh, what prices were during that mini fur boom that we had. So Russia, you know, regardless of what you read in the news uh, or hear from the Russian media, the the fur prices are not very or the, the economy is not very good there, and they're not buying a lot of fur. Uh, China has had economic slowdown occurring. Um, and I, don't, I don't know exactly why, other than maybe it's just part of an overall economic cycle. Uh, the Chinese economy is kind of governed by uh, from the top, where the government uh, creates a lot of these spending projects and does things to prop up the economy. And it has helped fuel this massive growth in China for a very long time. But I think most people would have told you that that growth was not sustainable and it had to slow down at some point. It just happened that it started to slow down a couple of years ago. Um, also, we had uh, we were at the heels of this huge increase in production of ranched fur. And that was because of this 2012-2013 mini fur boom of people that were producing this ranch fur, like mainly ranch mink and, and some ranch fox and other species, they reacted to high prices and started producing a lot more product. So this product was at a, at a very high level in supply and demand was going down because of lower oil prices and slowing economies. And of course that was a formula for disaster as far as fur prices. And all those ranch mink and other ranch fur got flooded into the market and prices were pushed even lower. We were starting to maybe see some light at the end of the tunnel. We were going through a lot of the supply of ranch mink. And then we had, in addition to everything else, this coronavirus crash. So what happened in March um, was 
basically, okay, so as for, for from our standpoint as trappers, we are producing fur in the fall and winter months. And usually, you know, in the past when we had a good fur market, there would be major auctions that helped move a large percentage of the fur that was produced in North America uh, during the season and, and right at the end of the season. So there was typically uh, a, a January or February auction. Usually it was late January, early February. There was an auction in March and there was an auction in May. Um, and combined, those auctions moved the vast majority of the fur that was produced and sent to auction. There's also a lot of um, big private buyers that kind of worked on on more of an ongoing basis where they'd take in fur from trappers during the season, uh, gather up lots of fur, and then and then ship it off to um, different uh, uh, customers. This year, uh, over the past couple of years, as the market has declined, the number of auctions has uh, has vastly diminished where first there were actually were September auctions in the past and December uh, those went away the January February auctions went away Um, this year there was we we were down to only one auction during the first season and that was in March and of course North American fur auctions is out of business so we had fur harvesters auctions the last remaining auction house um, in North America and FHA had a sale in March. And it was anticipated that the sale would move, was it intended to move a large portion of the fur that was trapped. You know, uh, they, had, they had holdover fur from last year. And in addition, they had a lot of fur that was trapped from, you know, November uh, through February, November through January, basically. And so the... The fur harvesters auction in March was all scheduled. It was ready to go. Coronavirus hit, and the Canadian border was shut down. So FHA did, I think, an excellent job in in reacting quickly to this, realizing that they could not have any buyers come in from out of the country. They immediately uh, went to work and implemented this online auction. So they did an online sale where they put up all the fur uh, on this auction format, like kind of like eBay, you know, where people could go on, log in to an account, and bid on fur. Um, I guess in a nutshell, it was pretty much a bust. People could not see the fur. People were not comfortable bidding on items they could not see. And uh, with everything, all the uncertainty in the economy with the virus and everything else, there just wasn't much demand. And so uh, most goods went unsold in the March auction. I, I think the only things that really sold were maybe people had orders for fur that they really needed to get taken care of and they needed to fill. And where the price was right, they made some bids and, and got that fur they needed. So the plan was for fur harvesters to push everything back till August. And they scheduled this auction for August where hopefully everything with the virus would have subsided, the borders would be back open, they could bring buyers in from all over the world. You know, their motto, where the world comes to buy wild fur. It, you know, that was that was kind of the thing. Um, that was the plan. Unfortunately, coronavirus, COVID-19, has 
been quite uh, resilient and has stuck around longer than a lot of people thought. And the Canadian border was still closed as of August 2020. So they had no choice but to um, to either cancel the auction or hold it for Canadian citizens only. And that's what they did. Fur harvesters went along with the auction and they had only buyers from Canada. I want to say they had 20 or 30 buyers there, which was, you know, pretty good for just being in country. However, uh, you know, there were, as you might expect, there were some major challenges with that. Now, I listened to this auction. I listened to almost all of it over the course of two days. Uh, it was it was interesting. It revealed a lot. It was actually pretty cool because it was the first time they actually uh, live broadcasted on YouTube so it was really easy to log in to, to get on and listen to it and and not a lot of interruptions or technical problems so that was good but it, it was really an eye-opener in terms of the um, the lack of demand for most fur products now if you're interested you can go to YouTube and search for harvesters auction and I believe they had as as of the last I checked they still had uh, recordings of the live auction that you could get on there and, and watch and see what went on there. But um, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of an overview in a nutshell. <coughs> Basically, there was good demand and heavy bidding competition for Western Heavy Coyotes. That's it. <laughs> there was essentially uh, little to no demand for any other items. Uh, my Martin uh, sold, most of my Martin sold, and they averaged $7.60 for Northern Maine Martin. It's it's hard to even fathom that. I mean, I remember the first year I trapped, uh, I averaged $38 for Martin. The lowest I've ever averaged for my Martin was probably in the mid-20s, and these averaged $7.60. Uh, Eastern Coyotes didn't had very limited almost no demand um, the southern obviously uh, no demand I had one coyote sell from from my lot from northern Maine and it was one of the better quality grades that I had which is you know very big uh, a heavy pelt but a, a, a lower graded color because our, our the color of our coyotes aren't that good $18. I think it was a 3x, 2x uh, heavy, and it, it sold for $18. Raccoon, no bidding. Uh, there was maybe a couple of lots of coons that sold out of the hundreds that were offered. Uh, so essentially no, no, no interest in coons. There was some, wolves and wolverines sold all right, but that's a limited, that's a limited market, you know. No interest in fox. Uh, almost no interest in beaver. There were some beaver that sold. There were a few, a few lots of better quality beaver that sold. The low end, some of the low end beaver sold, but we're talking, you know, smalls and mediums like two, three dollars, five dollars maybe. I mean, it's just, it was just pathetic. So, the vast majority of the the fur did not sell. I mean, there one thing to cons keep in consideration is none of these international buyers could see the fur 
in person. Now, fur harvesters did a great job of providing a bunch of photos and pictures and of, of the different lots. And there were Canadian buyers there that were bidding on behalf of international buyers that couldn't make it there. And so there was a lot of the phone stuff, you know, phone conversation going on while while bidding and all that. But um, overall, even even considering that, I think if there was a demand, like obviously the Western Heavy Coyotes, there was demand there. And the, I assume for the Canada Goose market. And th- there was there was active bidding even you know and it was it, there was a good market there if there was that level of demand for the other items those bidders that were there on the auction floor would would have been offering money for them um, a couple of other things to to put this in context um, first there were massive uncertainty right now so nobody knows what's going to happen over the next few months to year or two so nobody really wants to provide uh, you know, p- put together a, a big investment in fur items, uh, in, in raw fur that they're going to have to turn into garments and sell. Second, there's probably a huge amount of holdover fur garments that were produced and were not sold because of the economy. And third, if you're sitting there and there's a big pile of fur that's unsold and you're a buyer and there's no other buyers interested, how anxious are you going to be to to bid on that fur when maybe if you just sit back and wait the prices will come down even more maybe they'll give it to you so it it's a it really is a it, i can't even say it's a buyer's market there is no market the the fur market is dead uh right now uh, will it recover yes it will recover will we ever see um the the big numbers like 20 30 years ago i really don't know um, I really don't know. There's a lot of factors at play that are going to have to uh, have to change in order for that to happen. Um, but the fact is, the fur market, in my opinion, is currently dead. And trapping for money, trapping for part of your living, is is not feasible right now. Um, it breaks my heart to 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 say that because there's a lot of people in Alaska and Canada that rely on fur to provide a a small income so that they can live out in the wilderness and live that lifestyle that so many of us dream of of participating in and i got to see a little bit when i was on my trip to alaska uh that dream you know that dream's a bit in jeopardy right now it's it's a it's very frustrating to to consider and think about but it's a reality right now. Um, and until if and when things recover, um, I, I think we need to accept the fact that this is this thing is kind of dead right now. Next question: Will we as trappers stop trapping? There was an interesting debate on this on Trapper Man that I read the other day. Guys, there there's two camps: um, people who uh, usually in the older crowd, but not not always, not necessarily. People who tra- have trapped for money for a long time and don't do it anymore because it's not worth their time. They've had the experiences. They don't want to put in the work to catch worthless fur. Um, they have a good point in, in a lot of ways. 
you know, it is a lot of extra effort. It is a lot of work to, to trap, especially to trap and put up big numbers of fur for essentially nothing. And the argument that they make is, idiot, you're flooding a market that's already oversaturated with fur and has no demand. And that's something that I wanted to to mention. When I say the fur market is dead, uh, one of the big reasons uh, that that's the case is we're, I don't know if we've ever gone into a fur trapping season where we've had essentially all of last year's harvest unsold and still waiting to be sold. Other than the Western Heavy Coyotes, even the Bobcats didn't really sell. And the Bobcats were pathetic. So we've got all these coon, beaver, cats, eastern and southern coyotes. I mean, we've got so much fur on the market. Did I say beaver? So much fur that is sitting there waiting to be sold. And we're going into a season where we're going we're gonna to produce a whole bunch more. I mean, it... It's very difficult uh, thing to to deal with in in terms of you know being a trapper hoping for prices to increase and then yeah we're catching a bunch more fur we're gonna we're gonna further depress prices because we're gonna add supply to a market that has no demand so uh, th- they make a good point the the no non trapper guys um, I think you probably know where I fall in this camp um, I I am in of the opinion that I'm going to trap no matter what. Um, I'm, I'm going to trap Martin if I ha- if, even if I get zero dollars and zero cents for those Martin pelts. It's just the way I am. It's, um, I'm gonna trap other species. And the, the, the there are a number of reasons for this. Number one, I love to trap, and it would kill me to think of the idea of of going through the whole season and not setting a trap. Just, um, I've done it before. And, and at this point where I'm at in my trapping career, I don't want to do it again. Number two, it's, it's a beautiful way to get outdoors, to learn animals and hone your skills. And trapping makes me a better trapper. The experience is critical. I am still young enough, I'm 36 years old, that I feel that, you know, there's an opportunity in the future to uh, to be able to capitalize on value of fur. And I can't do that effectively unless I am skilled and know what I'm doing. And you can't get better without practice. So I want to get better. Another point is that there aren't a lot of people in the woods trapping when the fur prices are low. So you, the enjoyment factor goes up even more, and there's even more fur for you. So you, you know, your success rate it tends to be higher as well. So I'm still gonna trap, um, but you can't dismiss the argument that you're crazy to flood a market with fur that's already essentially worthless. So what do we do as trappers? We need to trap. Um, the other thing I forgot to mention is animal damage control. Even if the fur is not worth a penny, we need to control certain animal populations. Um, coyotes and wolves are a prime example. 
coons in farm country are, are a good example. Foxes uh, getting in the hen house. They're skunks. They're just a, a wide variety of animal damage problems. Beavers that are flooding roads and causing huge uh, economic damage to public infrastructure and public health. Big, huge concerns there. So these animals need to be harvested regardless of whether there's value for the fur. So are we going to trap? We're going to trap. Um, one of the interesting things about you guys now, not just to talk about me, is when I did the Trapping Today survey the end of last year, or sometime last year, I think it was around episode 100, we discussed this. Uh, one of the questions I had was uh, where you sell your fur. And there was a surprisingly large percentage of listeners to the podcast that have never sold any of their fur. So I think a lot of this audience is a, a group of trappers that have not been in the game for very long, haven't put up big numbers, they're learning to trap, they're, they're finding it's a great way to be out in the woods, and they are looking to find other things to do with their fur rather than to sell it. So that leads me to uh, what we do moving forward. For those of us that are going to trap no matter what, we're going to produce fur no matter what. What do we do? Because we need to consider the the possibility that this is a new normal in the fur market. I don't think it's going to be the norm for the long-term future, but we need to accept the fact that uh, it's a possibility. Um, so so we got to be ready for that. So what do we do? Do we give up, stop trapping? Uh, an alternative to giving up, I think, is is to try and make our own markets for the fur that we produce. And for most of us, direct marketing just plain stinks. I hate it. I've always hated direct marketing. Um, but it is a necessary evil um, for if you want to create a market for something that you can't otherwise sell. So going back to the question, is fur a commodity? And I, I know that's been debated, but I think for the most part, we can say that fur is a commodity because it's a product that's pretty interchangeable. And it is uh, the price of the commodity is governed by supply and demand. So how do you take something that's a commodity and turn it into something that you can collect a premium for? Or in this case, something that you can get paid for that otherwise has absolutely no value right now. To do that, you have to differentiate your product. You have to make it different than, than the typical commodity. So you have a, um, say you have a wild mink that you caught in December in Minnesota. And right now it might be worth $6. <laughs> Believe it or not, it might have been worth $30 or $40 you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. In in commodity market, that fur uh, buyer buyers are going to look at that at the auction house and they're going to bid on it, and you might get five or six dollars for it. So how do you? And right now you're probably going to get nothing because fur harvesters is not going to um, to give that fur away right now. And if you sell to if you you may not have a buyer in your area, 
Um, and if you drive to where you can find a fur buyer or ship it to a fur buyer, it's going to cost you as much to transport that fur as it's worth. So there's essentially no market. So how do you create a market for that? You have to create, you have to add value to the product. So that's where we get into creating our own markets. And, and I don't have an answer to how to get this done. Um, if I did, I'd probably be pretty wealthy relative to where I am right now. Um, but there, there's an obvious progression for us as trappers in terms of uh, selling fur to the traditional markets uh, as opposed to trying to take matters in our own hands. And the first thing that we all do typically is send it to a tannery. Tan your fur. Um, but before that, I would consider maybe looking into manufacturers who who are already marketing for clothing, for items. So there are people who have carved out small niches where they they make fur, they make items out of tanned fur. Um, and in a lot of cases, they may be looking for a little bit of fur, especially with the market being as low as it is and fewer trappers out there. Um, maybe you want to reach out to a few of these people. So get online and look at some of the suppliers of fur and and people who sell like you know mittens and hats and blankets and pillows and gloves and all, all kinds of fur products. And maybe reach out to some of them. Hey, do you have all the fur that you need? Um, chances are they you know they do, but you never know. There's an opportunity there especially if there's somebody that has started, you know, I, I've, I've been working um, with, with somebody who has just started making a bunch of this stuff. And there was an opportunity because they like the type of fur that I produce that I was able to get a, what I feel is a fair price for my efforts to produce that fur. And so there, there's a, there's a possibility that you're going to find somebody that's already making these items and could use a little bit extra supply. Now, likely in li all likelihood, that's not going to happen. So, you try that, give it a shot, but if that fails, you got to get your fur tanned. Some people can do home tanning, and I think that's something I want to get into and, and learn, figure out how to do properly at some point. There are some good resources for uh, how to do that. I haven't got there yet haven't got the time. If you've got the time, maybe you want to experiment with it and self-tan a little bit because you're going to save a lot of money doing so. But if you don't, if you can't, send that fur off to a tannery. Now, um, I'm going to recommend one tannery, and I actually wish that they would advertise here on the podcast because I think it would be an awesome fit. Um, if you guys, if anybody knows uh, the Moyles at Moyle Mink and Tannery in Idaho, uh, let them know. I've been, I've kind of tried to get a hold of him a little bit in the past and been unsuccessful. However, I I honestly can say advertise or not, Moyle Mink and Tannery is the place to go in terms of, you know, having a reputation as being the best tannery in in the United States. Uh, all of my fur that I've had tanned has gone to Moyles. There are a few other upstart smaller tanneries that um Actually, I, I did send some to another one. I, I take that back, but I don't even know if they're in business anymore. Um, but there are there are some, some other tanneries around, but uh, some of them have had issues 
maybe they're going kind of through the learning process of getting this all figured out and there's been issues with delays and getting customers their stuff back and maybe some quality issues. Um, Moils, everything that I've seen, everything I've heard is just unbelievably high quality stuff and it's an it's an awesome awesome tan the prices I think are reasonable and the timing uh, is the, the turnaround time is very reasonable it's you know three or four months they actually have a uh, promotion going right now if you go through the online process and and do everything online you will get uh, you'll, your order will get fast-tracked so Send fur to Moyles, get back some incredibly beautiful, high-quality, clean, well-tanned furs. Now what? You can take that tan fur and send it, just go straight to market with it. You can sell tanned fur pelts um, as wall hangers for people who have a cabin or camp or a man cave or just want to hang it up, you know, have something in their home. I've done that. I've actually done that with with some of you guys. And I may do it again if anybody's interested in buying some tan furs from my trap line. Uh, I did it with Martin and Fisher and some people that have not had the opportunity to trap Martin and Fisher. Maybe they're in a different part of the country and they can't do that. Have uh, really been excited about getting some of those um, so that's that's one possibility. However, you again you have to differentiate the product in order for it not to be a commodity. You can send your fur to Moil, you can get it back, you can put it up on eBay, which is essentially the hub for commodities, and you're gonna in a lot of cases you could get less for that fur by selling it on eBay than it costs to tan it or let you know it's just it, some you gotta check the prices I've, I'm always watching and looking at the sold items on eBay and seeing what the prices go for and everything but in a lot of cases I've, I've tried to sell Fisher pelts on eBay and, and it just for some reason people are doing it or selling them for dirt cheap and the lowest produce the person who's willing to sell for the lowest price wins it's Seth Godin calls it a race to the bottom he said the problem with the race to the bottom is you might win um, and so you're you're kind of uh, squeezing yourself out and and you're uh, you're losing money in the process so how do you differentiate this how do you make this something something different um, how do you find a market that's that's not a you know typical commodity race to the bottom um, one possibility is to Go to uh, a local craft fair. Go to a local sporting goods show. Um, of course, with COVID, that's going to be a little bit tougher now, but but they'll come back. And go somewhere to market your furs, where um, there isn't a, there aren't a bunch of other people standing there trying to sell your fur for cheaper than what you've got them sold for, got them got them listed for. So try to find uh, a place where you're the only game in town. Maybe you go to the local gift shop or sporting goods store or something, and and you can put a few pelts up there on consignment and sell those, and, and you can maybe get a decent price if there's not another trapper already doing that. So those are things to, to look into. Um, maybe you do something pretty cool with the pelt. Maybe you, like a... 
one excellent example of taking a commodity and differentiating the product and turning it into something special is people who hoop these beavers. They'll take a uh, beaver pelt and they'll have it tanned and then they will make like uh, alder or aspen um, hoop and they will sew uh, the beaver onto the hoop and kind of decorate it up and make it look nice like like this old school you know like like before fur stretchers when people used to hoop beaver um, that's what they put them on and guys do that and they they can do pretty well if they find the right customer base and they can sell them for really good money so that's uh, that's another possibility um, so so consider those things but but chances are you're gonna have to take the next step because you're only gonna sell a certain amount of, of fur there uh, through those you know who knows maybe you might hook up with some situation that I've mentioned and you'll be fine but let's think about the next step the next step is manufacturing that fur into something uh, of higher use and the most obvious is fur clothing so maybe you uh, catch a few beavers and you decide to make a pair of mitts and try to sell that pair of mitts maybe you make a hat maybe you make a vest um, like my friend Cole was making these koozies beer koozies or, or drink koozies um, a pillow a blanket slippers you know there's so many different things that you can you can make out of fur and honestly I think the group like you guys as creative as you are as trappers you're gonna find a way you're gonna probably one or two or three or four of you is gonna think of something that no one's thought about yet for fur actually Cole sent me something on Instagram that uh, some somebody some people were making fur masks for the covid so i don't know i, I really don't think that'd be very comfortable but to, to walk around in a fur mask maybe in the middle of winter it'd be all right but yeah um so so there's things that are probably i haven't thought of and maybe you haven't thought of but someone's going to think of and and uh find something that you can add a lot more value to your fur you can send these out to someone who manufactures them and you're not going to get as much of a cut of the profit when you sell them because there's a cost to manufacturing. Um, some people have started to learn to sew and it is incredibly time consuming. It's detailed work, but it is from what I've heard from people who have done it. It's not all that complicated. It, it can be done. Uh, even by people like me who have very little artistic skills. So think about that. Maybe think about um, adding value by um, finding some patterns, making some patterns, and sewing up some fur items. Um, all possibilities to think about. But I don't have all the answers uh, tonight. I just I wanted to um, I wanted to get your mind thinking because yes, as of right now. The fur market, as we know it, is dead, in my opinion. And I don't think it's going to change in the near future. I think we're going to have to go through a tough period. So for us to move forward as fur producers, uh, we need to find ways on our own to market this fur. Uh, I wish there was someone that would come in and save the day and, and create a new fur market, but it doesn't appear to be happening. So we need to take matters in our own hands, and let's let's try to do what we can. And and market our fur. If you have any ideas, if you have any things that have worked for you, feel free to email me and let me know. Let's discuss them. Let's talk. Um, I'm 
I'm excited to to hear what people have uh, have thought of and in ways that that you think of marketing. The other big thing is if you're only going to catch a few items, a few animals, wear it. Make your own fur products and start wearing your fur. Um, it's going to be a great promotional effort. It's going to be a good opportunity to talk to people about the sustainability and the high quality of wild fur and the incredible warmth that it provides. So uh, maybe wear a little bit of your own fur. Make, you know, spend some of the first few animals you catch, uh, get them tanned, and uh, and put that product on display yourself. So, well, guys, I I am sad. I'm I'm uh, I'm sorry to bring the the bad news about the market. I think most of you already knew that that uh, this was where we were at. But for those of you who who didn't, I'm sorry. Um, it's just the way it is this is going to be the normal for a while. So let's let's make the best of it. Let's be optimists and let's find ways to create our own markets as best we can and move forward in, in this whole thing that we call trapping. It's a beautiful thing and uh, it, it's, uh, it's something I know I'm going to be doing for a long time and I hope we all are because it's necessary. Uh, people need trappers in the world whether they, they know it or not, whether they like it or not. Um, we uh, we provide a lot of services in terms of controlling animal populations and keeping them healthy, and so uh, let's uh, let's think more about that. And uh, it's great to have you here tonight. Now let's get into the Cotsboro's deal of the week. So, how about a five spot this week? How about a little bit of extra money in your pocket for ordering from Cotsboro's? If you use the code JW five, that's my initials JW number five. You'll get $5 off any order of $30 or more from Cots Brothers. I know these small orders are very common because if you're like me, you maybe ordered a bunch of stuff and then you found that, oh, I needed, actually I need I need some um, some Mighty Hooks and a few other things from Cots Brothers. And I, I get a little list going and it's like, ah, I don't, you know, I don't really want to pay the shipping on just a few items, a small order. I want to wait till, well, here you go. You're going to cut five bucks off everything. So if you order $30 or more from Cotsbros.com, use the code JW5, you get a free $5. It's going to cut your shipping cost way down. Um, you're also going to earn bonus points on anything you, you order. So uh, in addition to being able to use this code, so that's going to help as well. And this code expires on October 2. So you get a little time. If you are late listening to this episode and you're, you're behind by a couple episodes, you still have some time to uh, take advantage of the JW5. Uh, October 2 is the expiration. $5 off for any purchase at kotzbros.com. K-A-A-T-Z. Thanks, Kotzbros. And thank you guys for listening in. Keep on thinking trap and keep on talking trap. And we'll catch you on the next episode.